Welcome to the Reality Taboo, where no topic is off limits. It's February 23rd, 2024. I'm Jeff. Joining me is Ness. Our first topic is immigration. Last week, the United States House of Representatives impeached Alejandro Mayorkas, the Secretary of Homeland Security. He was the first cabinet member to be impeached since 1876. So the articles accuse Mayorkas of having, quote, repeatedly violated laws enacted by Congress regarding immigration and border security, with millions of illegal aliens having entered the country, quote, in large part because of his illegal conduct. It, the articles accuse him of, quote, refusing to obey the law. And specifically, the articles charge that he, quote, that Mayorkas, quote, willfully refused to comply with the detention mandate set forth in the section of the Immigration and Nationality Act, which says aliens must be detained before removal proceedings. Quote, instead of complying with this requirement, Mayorkas implemented a catch-and-release scheme whereby such aliens are unlawfully released even without effective mechanisms to ensure appearances before the immigration courts for removal proceedings or to ensure removal in the case of aliens ordered removed. And the consequences were, uh, according to the impeachment articles, that aliens encountered as inadmissible at ports of entry increased from 590,000 each fiscal year 2017 to 2020 up to 1.4 million in 2021 and over 2.3 million in fiscal year 2022, 2.4 in 2023. The articles conclude that Mayorkas willfully and systematically refused to comply with the immigration laws, failed to control the border to the detriment of national security, compromised public safety, and violated the rule of law and separation of powers in the Constitution to the manifest injury of the people of the United States. Finally, the articles conclude with, Wherefore, Alejandro N. Mayorkas, by such conduct, has demonstrated that he will remain a threat to national and border security, the safety of the American people, and to the Constitution if allowed to remain in office, and has acted in a manner grossly incompatible with his duties and the rule of law. Alejandro N. Mayorkas thus warrants impeachment and trial, removal from office, and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. Well, catch and release is not anything new. This is, I guess, the uh, as the old saying goes, sometimes uh, quantity has a quality all of its own. It's really in the numbers, not in the process. There has been no meaningful immigration enforcement among Border Patrol agents. Uh, catch and release has been going on since at least the, the early 2000s, the Bush administration, and unbroken through all of the presidential administrations from there until now. This is all political theater. It requires two-thirds of the Senate to vote for a conviction to have Mayorkas removed from his position, and clearly that's not going to happen. So I suppose it has some value existing in the historical record as another marker of the decline and fall of the United States as a unified political entity. I think that's a good thing. I think it's an inevitable thing to have a step in that direction towards collapse. And it's nice to put the salience is nice, but 
practically it has no effect. The House's articles of impeachment accuse Mayorkas of failing to protect the citizens of the United States, but in the current lexicon, that would be impossible for him to even articulate why Americans would need protection from immigrants in the first place. It, we're to the point now where the Democratic Party, the, the inner party, the ruling party, doesn't even have the language to address this issue any longer, even to pay lip service to it, let alone to actually take any action to reverse the trend or to slow the trend. Um, and it's, it's a feature rather than a bug from every perspective of the Biden administration in terms of, as we'll get to later, uh, potential fodder for the military and for political assuring up democratic political uh, dominance into the indefinite future. And as we'll hear Mayorkas's putative boss say in a second, this is this is facilitating the transformation demographically of the country. And you don't have to take it from us. We can hear it in Biden's own words. This is something to celebrate, the fact that the United States will no longer or is currently no longer, depending on exactly how you slice it, um, majority European descent. And that's something that every part of institutional power, every major institutional organization and all the managerial class members that, that staff and lead those institutions are celebrating. There is no inhibiting force against the transformation coming from any of the positions of institutional power in the United States or really anywhere in the Western world. And in a way, Mayorkas is just doing the bidding of his boss. Really, Joe Biden should be the one being impeached. Ness referenced a video of Joe Biden. Um, I'm going to play that. This is from 2015 when Biden was still vice president. Not only are Muslim communities, but African communities, Asian communities, Hispanic communities. And, and the wave still continues. It's not going to stop, nor should we want it to stop. As a matter of fact, uh, um, it's one of the things I think we can be most proud of. There's a second thing in that black box an unrelenting stream of immigration, non-stop, non-stop. Folks like me who are Caucasian of European descent, for the first time in 2017, will be in an absolute minority in the United States of America. Absolute minority. Fewer than 50% of the people in America, from then and on, will be white European stock. That's not a bad thing. That's a, that's a source of our strength. What a difference nine years makes. And um, also in that video right next to Biden is Mayorkas. So it's just a yet another reminder of this is the third Obama term in so many ways. What would you think of that, Ness? Well, when you say what a difference nine years makes, I assume you're referring to the fact that Biden was a little more comprehensible there in terms of comp comprehensible in terms of what he said, because nine years makes no difference in terms of what the stated objectives are. I understated it by saying it's a feature rather than a bug to have a lack of enforcement going on. I mean, if you port that that snippet that you took there nine years into the future, it is effectively exactly what the House Republicans are accusing Marcus of doing. And it's not surprising that he's doing it because there is Joe Biden saying that that is what should happen, that it is 
a source of our strength and that the unrelenting amount of immigration will not stop, should not stop, cannot stop. Can't stop, won't stop. And despite the amount of attention that the issue is generating because it's becoming so difficult to ignore with big city, big blue cities, even feeling the, the immediate consequences of this surge uh, in numbers of immigrants really unseen in modern American history. Despite that, this used to be an issue that really had a clear-cut distinction between the ruling class and the vast majority of middle American working class Americans, where survey public polling would consistently show large numbers of Americans favoring restrictions on immigration, lessening the number of immigrants allowed into the United States, many people favoring a moratorium. Uh, but as the demographics of the country changes, so do the uh, opinions on immigration enforcement versus immigration, uh, open immigration. Looking at a recent YouGov economist survey on immigration, uh, one of the questions that was asked of survey respondents was whether or not immigration makes the United States, the country, better off or worse off. I'm going to go through a few of the numbers using a pretty simple index where I simply take the percentages who say that immigration makes the country better off and subtract from it the percentages who say that it makes the country worse off. And look at that uh, among respondents from a couple different major demographic groups. And we'll see that, again, as I alluded to, Previously, restriction for immigration was not even a, a particularly controversial opinion among uh, middle Americans and working class members of the left. Um, now it has, since, since Trump came onto the stage, it's become something, any sort of restrictionism at all is something that the left is allergic to. And not just the leaders, but also the rank and file voters. By race, whites uh, have a, a reading of negative 18. So whites uh, are, on the whole, it, of the opinion that immigration generally makes the country worse off. But uh, blacks have a plus 10 and Hispanics have a plus 1. This is something that you see over and over again if you are familiar with survey data uh, regarding the question of immigration or demographic change or anything. Along those lines, you see consistently that blacks express more favorability towards demographic change and open borders and uh, opposition to any sort of restrictions on immigration than Hispanics do. Uh, by age, that's a, there's, a, there's a big difference by age. So among those under the age of 45, there's a plus eight. So those under the age of 45 are generally supportive of immigration and think that immigration makes the country better off, whereas the Gen X and boomers, those age 45 and older, have a score of negative 25. By political partisan affiliation, Democrats have a score of plus 33, independents of negative 17, and Republicans of negative 53. So this is a, an issue still when it comes to the democratic process, that is a rhetorical winner for Republican restrictionists, not nearly to the extent that it used to be, but it is still generally a winner, which is why uh, it's, it's not an issue that the corporate media likes to talk about unless they're absolutely forced to. Um, but in the past, when this was more of a winner, nothing 
manifested from it in terms of any sort of restrictionism at all. I mean, I suppose you can make the argument that it gave us Donald Trump, but when Donald Trump was president, he didn't do anything about it. And what he, other than really galvanize opposition to any sort of serious immigration restrictionism among Democratic voters and in the power centers, the institutional centers of power in the country that increasingly look at any sort of restriction on immigration, immigration enforcement as synonymous or at least as a proxy for MAGA movement's success and Donald Donald Trump's success. And so opposition is even stronger, uh, has solidified more than it was in the past. And the numbers among the voting public, uh, while still on the whole, modestly restrictionist or less restrictionist than they were 20 years ago. So the TLDR on that is it, it's it's pretty blackpilling if immigration restrictionism is something that you hope to have happen at a national level. If you are pulling for political dissolution, then this is a step in that direction. Uh, as we see states like like Texas, uh, challenging the federal government on the federal government's utter refusal to enforce immigration laws in any in any sense at all. Uh, the survey drilled down further on eight different dimensions of immigration and posed the same question to respondents asking whether or not the country was made better or worse off on these eight dimensions. And on four of the dimensions, Americans on the whole viewed immigration in a positive light. Those were the labor market, on the culture, on the cuisine, those cheap chalupas, and on innovation. And on the other four dimensions of immigration, the economy, on politics, on crime, and on government spending, uh, immigration was generally viewed unfavorably. Our next topic is also immigration related. It is the Courage to Serve Act. This is a proposed law by Pat Ryan and John James. Pat Ryan is a white Democratic congressman from the New York City northern suburbs. John James is a black Republican congressman from Michigan. So the bill creates a pilot program that would provide an expedited path to citizenship for qualified and vetted migrants who serve in the military. The legislation addresses two challenges facing the United States an influx of migrants looking to work, build a better life for their families, and contribute to our country, as well as a recruitment crisis within the ranks of our armed forces. So basically the migrants are going to be, hopefully, uh, if Pat Ryan and John James get their way, will be turned into mercenaries. It's essentially invite the world so that we can continue invading the world, to paraphrase Steve Saylor. There's a quote in the press release from John James. He says, quote, Some of the heroes Pat and I served with in Iraq were immigrants, and I can't think of a more deserving person to become an American citizen than immigrants who are willing to serve in our military. So participating in the U.S. military, according to these guys, is the most virtuous thing an American can do for his country. One of the requirements in this proposal is that these candidates must be, quote, admissible to the United States. I, I don't know what that means. I, I That might mean that they have to be legally present in the country. I'm not really sure. Um, 
And this whole thing reminds me of recently a story I saw about uh, a nice old white lady in Boston who was letting a Haitian family stay with her. And the white family, white lady was interviewed and she was talking about how nice it was to have a black woman who cooks and cleans for her for free. And it sounded kind of familiar, but I don't think in the way the lady intended. Well, the comparisons to the fall of the Roman Empire and late imperial collapse with the modern United States is something that might be overwrought. Sometimes it it feels like it's too much of a cliche, but in this case, it really does smack you in the face. This would be something that would make Alaric proud. I mean, the, the, the idea of bringing in, and we hear constantly, if you see the video footage of it, it's clear that these are disproportionately like military aged men who are streaming into the country from different places from all over the world, not just from Central America, from Mexico and from, from Latin America even, but also from Africa and from the Middle East, some from China. Uh, the idea that because we cannot generate a domestic fighting force, we are going to use mercenaries or at least attempt to use mercenaries. And that's another question. Why these immigrants who are under no threat at all of deportation or of being unable to have de facto residency status granted to them why they would want to fight in the first place. I'm going to play a video of uh, something related. This is Senator Dick Durbin from Illinois. This is uh, something he said in a some sort of congressional hearing that was held last year in 2023. We have 780,000 DACA recipients, people who are protected under DACA, many of whom want to serve this country where they grew up. There's an obstacle, Congress. We have not given them a pathway to citizenship. This should be a pathway. You ought to open up your opportunities. We should across the board in the military to DREAMers and to DACA recipients who really want to serve this country and uh, I think are genuine about it. For some reason, there's been a resistance. Perhaps it was the luxury of a lot of recruits and we didn't need others. But I would just tell you, I've met them. I know them. They've made great sacrifices just to have this opportunity to wear the uniforms you're wearing today. Uh, and I hope that uh, when you're in the highest levels of the Pentagon that you'll discuss this candidly. They, your predecessors have not always been cooperative when I've raised this issue. There's a resistance because these folks are, quote, undocumented. They may not have been born here, but they love this country as much as any of us who pledge allegiance to that flag. So I hope you'll consider that. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Right. They love the country so much that the very first act that they commit upon entering the, the country is to break the laws of that country that they love so dearly. This is against the backdrop of the government is saying explicitly that the most dangerous element, the biggest threat to national security is not foreign, but is domestic. And that what what better way to turn the guns inwardly than to bring people from outside and give them guns, people who have no, no loyalty, no attachment to the United States to represent the armed forces of the United States in that next domestic war on terror. Our next topic is the ongoing horrors in Gaza. Last Tuesday, the United States vetoed a United Nations Security Council resolution for a ceasefire and that would have helped facilitate humanitarian aid getting into Gaza. The U.S. in vetoing it argued that it would, quote, jeopardize 
the ongoing negotiations between the two parties to release the Israeli hostages, and it wouldn't be, quote, conducive to a sustainable peace and would instead empower Hamas. Thirteen of the 15 members of the Security Council supported the resolution. Britain abstained, and the U.S. alone vetoed it, voted against it. It was the third humanitarian resolution incorporating a ceasefire vetoed by Washington over Gaza, each of which was intended by the White House to give Israel a completely free hand to deal with the Palestinians. Recently, or at, uh, in a press conference last month, Netanyahu said that as part of any resolution ending the active conflict in Gaza, Israel, quote, needs security, con- security control over all territory west of the Jordan. That demand, which Netanyahu called a necessary condition, would include both Gaza and the West Bank. So essentially saying he would not condone a two-state solution, which has been the main talking point, The something that most people seem to agree was necessary. The leader of Israel, as recently as a month ago, seems to have taken that completely off the table and a few other side notes on this story i thought it's very interesting that the u.s ambassador to the u.n is a black woman linda thomas greenfield and another thing nancy pelosi bizarrely or perhaps not bizarrely said uh, recently quote There's nothing that we have sent since October 7th that has contributed to this brutality, referring to the brutality in Israel. She said, quote, in the longer run, they are in a dangerous neighborhood. So seeming to just deny that the United States is not only supporting this rhetorically, but in a real material sense. Directly, those bombs that are going off in Gaza are supplied directly by the United States. So from an America First perspective, I have to ask, what is the United States getting out of this? There's a few obvious answers. One is there's a select group of people in the military industrial complex who are making a lot of money off of this. And then there's, I think, genuine support for Israel from an America first perspective, what bit of foreign policy orientation at all would you describe as making sense for America's for from an American America first perspective? I can't think of anything. Yeah, I think actually in this case, the case of Israel, as we we looked at a few weeks ago, this is a relatively popular undertaking for the United States to get involved in. Not at an international level, but domestically it is. Uh, certainly it's more popular at this point than the Ukraine war is or than Iraq or maintaining a presence in Afghanistan was prior to the withdrawal. So there is a lot of democratic support in the United States for supporting Israel and giving Israel the green light to do whatever it needs to do to uh, ethnically cleanse the Palestinians or defeat Hamas or however it wants to be articulated. Probably both of those things, realistically both of those things, because they are intertwined. They're not easy at this point to disentangle from one another. And I think it is worth mentioning that a two-state solution is also something that will not 
be acceptable by the vast majority of the Arab population living within Israel now. That's something Hamas, of course, is is vehemently opposed to, but so are the majority of Palestinians. You hear that chant from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Well, that whether or not that implies a destruction of Israel, it does clearly imply, not, not just imply, but it, it is explicitly calls for a single Palestinian state in the that runs from the Jordan River all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. And speaking of the domestic feelings towards what's happened, the American domestic feelings of what's happening in Israel, Gaza, uh, I have a recent story. This is from the Wall Street Journal dated February 21st. Harvard condemns anti-Semitic image circulated by student and faculty groups. So there's this cartoon, apparently, that was circulating around uh, Harvard. Some uh, student groups um, were distributing this. And I just thought it was interesting, more from a media perspective, how these things are covered. The article just takes it for a fact as a given that this image is anti-Semitic. It makes uh, almost no reference to the image itself. It certainly does not attempt to engage in any way with the substance of what the image is. It doesn't provide a picture of the substance. There's uh, All it says is the cartoon depicted a hand etched with the Star of David and a dollar sign holding a noose around the necks of what appeared to be the black boxer and activist Muhammad Ali and uh, Gamal Nasser, who was a longtime president of Egypt. So it really doesn't give you any idea of what the image is. And so I had to go elsewhere and try to track track down this anti-Semitic image. And it's essentially um, blaming Israel and Jewish power and money, uh, it's saying that that is what is strangling the third world. Um, It is what's keeping down uh, the third world. And it connects what's going, it makes the connection between the radical black liberation movements of the 1960s, such as the Black Panther Party. It's connecting those to the Palestinian resistance. And so um, it says, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee likened Zionism to an imperial project, while the Black Panther Party aligned itself with the Palestinian resistance, framing both struggles as a unified front against racism, Zionism, and imperialism. And so the president, the new president of Harvard, who is a Jewish man who replaced Claudine Gay, the black woman, so uh, he said, quote, perpetuating vile and hateful anti-Semitic tropes or otherwise engaging in inflammatory rhetoric or sharing images that demean people on the basis of their identity is precisely the opposite of what this moment demands of us. And we've discussed this uh, in previous episodes, but I think this is yet another example of the trickiness of keeping Jewish people in the oppressed category rather than in the oppressor category uh, where a lot of people see Jews fitting a lot more easily into the 
oppressor category. And cartoons like that show why. And I think that that shows you why this was so quickly nipped in the bud that um, is just being completely unacceptable. I also think that if the hand in the image had not had a dollar sign and uh, or I guess if it had not had a Star of David sign, if it was just a generic white Gentile hand, I don't think this would have even warranted a second glance. That would have been perfectly fine. It would have been praised. It's probably something that you would have seen in any sort of undergraduate history political science class. But as soon as you put a Star of David, then it becomes completely unacceptable. And uh, predictably, one of the Jewish student groups at Harvard um, was outraged by this image and in their statement condemning it, they invoked the Holocaust because obviously. And the cognitive dissonance is so intense when you see every time you look on social media, you see these horrific images of what Israel is doing to these Palestinians. You see children in terrible conditions, in hospitals, shaking, crying uncontrollably, their family members killed, their whole neighborhood destroyed. And then at the same time, it's the Jewish people, it's the Israelis who are the victims. They're the ones that people should have sympathy for. Well, any moral indignation aside, the reality is that this rhetorical tactic is quite effective for Jews, and it has been, continues to be. No matter how hard they try not to be perceived as white, non-whites are going to continue to perceive Jews as not distinct from whites, other than in the sense that they are especially privileged whites. Um, And because any sort of white identitarianism in the Western world at this point in the United States is DOA immediately, the best thing white advocates can hope for at this point is that Jews are forced into perceiving themselves and their interests as synonymous with those of Gentile whites, because it is only Jews that have, um, among those of European descent, have any capacity to defend themselves, defend their interests, assert their rights. Gentiles of European descent are either unwilling or unable or a combination of both to do that. And so criticizing Jews for white advocates to criticize Jews in this regard seems, it seems to me that it would behoove them not to do that. uh, Because because at this point, really the only way that is deemed acceptable to criticize non-white behavior in any context is in this specific context in the context that it is anti-Jewish. All right, with that, we're going to wrap it up. Thanks for listening to The Reality Taboo. Please remember, like, share, subscribe. We'll talk to you next time.